Well, how y'all doing? I am spent. That's how I feel. I, it's, it's the, the be real uh, moment of, of, maybe it's just be real Sunday. Uh, and so if you're a, a guest here, uh, my name's Jeff Henderson, I'm the pastor here at, at the church. And uh, from, from many of us, like our staff, I mean, I know that there's kind of the, um, the common church joke that it's a great job to be a pastor, to be in ministry because you only work on Sundays. And, uh, and to a certain extent, we acknowledge that we don't work any harder than any, anybody that, that um, uh, you know, you all have jobs, you have lives, and you go out and you work your rear ends off to make ends meet and to get ahead. And, to, and so you're working just as hard as, as we're working. One of the challenges, though, of ministry is, is that there's eternal consequences, you know? And so... Uh, someday, some weeks, you feel that in really weighty ways. There are, uh, and this is one of those ministry weeks that's been really emotionally heavy and weighty and ups and downs, and and, um, and so I think we all feel a little spent, and I think it's a good thing. You know, it's the, I, I, one of the principles I teach over and over is you can't give away what you don't have, and when you're open to the Lord pouring into your life, then you minister out of the overflow. And some days, though, you're leaking and you're pouring out so fast that you need to be recharged, and we're all in that, that place. And so I'm, I'm giving that as a precursor into the message um, that I'm going to preach. I'm also doing that to say to you, to those of you who maybe don't know uh, what we were talking about when Brian mentioned even in worship uh, a service yesterday, we had an amazing uh, service yesterday to honor and to remember and to celebrate the life of Eli Warren, who's a 10-year-old boy, a precious little boy, one of these people. Do you know certain people just have it when they walk into the room, they light up the room, right? You don't teach it, you don't, you can't even really explain it, but when you see it, you, you know it, right? You know what I'm talking about? Eli had that it factor, and and when somebody like that, if he's 10 or 30 or 50 or 70, when, when a congregation, a body loses somebody like that, it's extra weighty because of the impact. But at 10 years old, it's all amplified. And um, we all felt there was a massive crowd, I mean, uh, beyond standing room only, people outside even, and then a massive uh, showing of fellowship that on the property afterwards that went, you know, you know, the service started at 3. I think there were still people here hanging out and fellowshipping 9 o'clock or something like that. It had all the right feelings, right? It had all the right, right stuff going on. But it does feel a bit um, draining almost, like you put yourself out there. But this whole event around his life, his passing, was, you know, because we live in the age that if you don't put a hashtag with it, it doesn't count, and so if we had to have one, we have a good one. And it, and it was and because we have these rocks, and I think there's some that are still around. Everybody painted rocks, and they're putting them around town, and they were, they were hashtag love like Eli. And the cool thing about that is, is that when we think of Eli's life, we feel like he loved like Jesus. And so um, all that to say this is a perfect precursor for where we're going to go this morning. Um, we started this heavy week with a heavy service on Wednesday called an Ash Wednesday service. And Ash Wednesday is the beginning of a season in the life of the church called Lent. We're not particularly into like liturgical seasons, 
but it's hard to ignore the significance of the six-week season, the 40, approximately 40 days that lead from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday because of the significance of, 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 of this particular day, this Resurrection Sunday, the day that we mark you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's, it's significant for us that we would not race there and skip over all that happened, but that we would actually count the cost of the journey that Jesus goes on to get to Jerusalem and to suffer. And, you know, in, G, in the, what they call the Apostles' Creed, you guys, anybody grew up in the church reciting the Apostles' Creed like I did? I believe in God the Father, you know, you remember that? Well, and when, it, when it depicts Jesus' life, the life of Jesus, it sums up Jesus' life in one word. You know what that word is? Suffered. <laughs> he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day he rose. His life summed up in one word. And so when we consider what it means to love like Eli or to love like Jesus and to walk with him, um, it's significant that we started our heavy week on Ash Wednesday, which is a heavy day of saying, Lord, I deny myself and I follow you and I want to pursue you with my whole heart. And, I, and I, to be honest, I haven't. And so that's where we began this week, and I want to pick up this Sunday in a passage of Scripture that helps us to frame, I think, what it means to journey with Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. I'll tell you, this entire chapter of Luke is one of the most power-packed chapters in terms of all the things that are happening. It's, you know, Jesus sending out the 12 and feeding the 5,000, and then Peter confessing Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah, and Jesus goes up on the mountain, is transfigured, and when he hangs out with Moses and Elijah, do you know what they talk about? It says Moses and Elijah and Jesus hang out and have a conversation. You know what they talk about? They, they, talk, about Je- they talk about Exodus. They talk about Jesus' Exodus from the earth. That Jesus is, he's like, you know, Moses, I know you let him on Exodus. I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem and to do a different kind of Exodus where I'll be crucified. You know, that, that's Moses, Elijah, and Jesus having a conversation about what lies ahead. I, I'm not, it's just fascinating to me. There's a, a, you know, the disciples can't, they struggle with effectiveness in ministry with, with a boy who's got an evil spirit. And Jesus is teaching all the long, all the way about what it means to follow him. And then he comes to this passage in Luke 9, starting at verse 51, which is, a massive marker in the book of Luke. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him. You go on to the next verse. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, saw the rejection, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heavens and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us insight and perspective on this passage. We pray that you would speak into our hearts, through our ears, And we believe, Lord, that you can speak to every person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest. We do not believe that even on these Sundays when our children stay with us, that we have to sacrifice the message. 
we believe that their hearts are ready to hear and they can take in way more than we understand. And so, Lord, we trust that. We trust you to speak into all of our hearts. There's fertile soil here, Lord. We believe that. We believe that in the midst of the rocky places on the road and the shallow soil and the stuff where the, the, the seeds choked out by weeds, we believe there is within our midst fertile soil that will allow the seed to go deep and to grow up and to bear fruit a hundredfold. And so we ask, Lord, that you would make us all fertile soil. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage of Scripture that I just uh, uh, laid out to you, just read, it marks the beginning of a journey uh, in the life of Jesus. And in Luke's narrative, you know, by the way, uh, I, I would, I'm not an expert uh, on any particular book of the Bible, but if I had to focus my my expertise anywhere, it'd be on the writings of Luke. I think I spent more time studying Luke, and Luke is, by the way, the most prolific writer in the New Testament, even though he didn't write as many books as Paul. The volume of his writings, Luke and Acts, is actually the longest volume. of. I mean, he's, he, so Luke is a prolific writer in the New Testament and, and, and tells a story. He, tell, he, he, he tracks a narrative in a way where he always marks these significant points, and this is a significant marker in, in Luke's narrative, beginning in Luke and going through Acts, and it's the beginning of a journey. It's called, theologians call this the travel narrative that, that, G, that is marked by the, this verse 51 and goes all the way through ni- uh, Luke 19, verse 28, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry. And so I want to break this down and walk through this passage in what I would call kind of a classic style of, of just, you know, kind of looking at the verses and, and drawing out for uh, ourselves something significant because of the significance of this season, uh, this Lenten season, uh, the, the, the six-week period where we go, where we travel, where we have to hitch up and move our way all the way to Jerusalem and into the resurrection, but we can't bypass all the steps along the way. It's a time to evaluate. We have to ask questions when we go on a journey, like, what do I bring? What do I leave behind for the journey? And I would say that this season and this message is a call to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called costly grace in a book that he wrote called The Cost of Discipleship. And I'll actually quote from that at the end so that you won't have to wonder what that means, costly grace. But I will say this to you, that in contradiction to costly grace, there's a, there's a concept called cheap grace. And many of us live on cheap grace. And today's text, today's passage is a lesson on what costly grace looks like. And so we see, if, if you could throw that back up there, just verse 51, so people can have it if they don't have it with them or have it on their phone, if you could just keep it up on the screen. Yeah, you see there in the very beginning of verse 51 that, that it's saying that the days drew near for him to be taken up. It, so, that, so Luke is telling us something here that it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Basically, you know, I, I laid this message out in some, in, in some points, and I, I've been having a, a number of uh, dreams in my life in the last year or so about uh, living a life for Jesus that's great. And I, I don't know why, what that's influenced by. It could be that I've been eating strange things. It could be, I think it's the Lord. Um, but, you know, what does it mean to live a life that's great? And there's a series of things I've had in dreams that have shown me in my life areas that are like not what I thought they would be. And I think this passage is not a dream, but a real living example of greatness. And there's several markers within it. And, and I think one of the things that Luke's telling us right here at the beginning of this 
new narrative of Jesus moving to Jerusalem, the true greatness is marked by perseverance, steadfast determination, by not going anywhere. And what he's showing us at the outset of this is that Jesus, this is my way of putting it, Jesus is the GPS for the journey. He's the model. He's the, he's the simple way in which we mark and we identify how to get from where we are to where we need to go. Um, we were just, Carol and I were traveling on uh, Friday. We had to go a couple places, and I had to, this is, this is the craziness of my week. We were in Lake City and had to get back here, and I had to be on a, ma- on a big old Zoom call, like a massive call with a bunch of people at 4 o'clock. We thought we'd be home by then. We didn't even leave Lake City until 4, so she drove while I was on a Zoom call, and then we pulled over to get gas, and we pulled over to get gas. I was still talking, and she was like, wait, do I go left or right when I get back on? And I'm trying to say, just follow the GPS. But, you know, and it's because it's, it, to me it was almost like a living parable of what happens is, is that we have like a GPS that will tell us where to go, but then we kind of start to lose confidence in it, and we go, wait, do I go this way or that way? And I'm trying to say, well, I'm on a call, just follow the GPS, and I think in a in, in a very similar way, Jesus is our GPS, and oftentimes in life we get to this place where, like, wait, do I go left or right here? We're like, just follow the GPS. I mean, he is the way, and he's our GPS on this journey, and Luke tells us in this very first verse of this passage that the time had approached, time had come, time was drawing near for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, and it's uh, inside information from Luke. The disciples that were following Jesus didn't have an audible narrative going on with them that they could hear what we're hearing, and so Luke's telling us that there's a hinge in the story, that things are getting ready to really shift, like the story grows more serious with this announcement. Not that there was all fun and games, you know, with, um, you know, foxes have, have, have dens and, you know, where does the Son of Man lay his head? I mean, it wasn't always so easy to, to, to hang out with Jesus, but now it's getting really serious. And so much so that, you know, the Bible says here that Jesus resolutely or concretely or set his face to go to Jerusalem. And there's a few different ways to look at that. I, I love that particular phrase, that passage right there, where it says that he, he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what it means literally, it like means to, to, to make something solid. It's like pouring concrete and then drying it is the idea of like setting something in stone. And it says that Jesus now had done all that he had to do. He now set his face toward Jerusalem. He, he put it, this mission is set and established, and it's in, and it's not going anywhere. And it's saying that Jesus undertakes this final journey towards Jerusalem with absolute purpose and focus, and a, a determination that was fitting for the difficulty of what laid ahead of him. Now, he's like, this is not easy what I'm going to do, so my, I have to be resolute in, in, in going this way. And I'm going to minister to people along the way, but nothing will cause me to deviate from this past, from this path. Some verses like, or some translations like the ESV that I'm using here say set his face, and, and, and some commentators actually say set his face like flint. Anybody ever heard that? Set his face like flint? Well, there's nothing ever in the, in the Greek and the New Testament that says set his face like flint, but a lot of people believe when Jesus is saying this, he's actually referencing Isaiah chapter 50, and Isaiah chapter 50 is this passage where the Messiah, who is going to be born in time, is speaking prophetically of the time when he'll come, and it says, for the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, 
and I know that I will not be ashamed. And it's Jesus. This is Jesus who has steadfastly set his face like flint, like a rock, like stone, as Isaiah wrote, going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And if you've heard, I'm guessing many of you who follow Jesus for any period of time have heard of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, and he wrote a wonderful sermon on Isaiah 57 that was titled, The Redeemer's Face Set Like Flint. And in it, he considered how severely that was tested. The steadfast resolve of Jesus was tested. He's like, this was no small matter for him to be resolute in this mission. He's like, look at all the tests he faced, and he offers a few. He says he was tested by offers from the world to lay aside his mission. He was, he was tested by the persuasions of his friends. Do you know those who were closest to him tried to talk him out of uh, this mission? He was, pers- he was tested by the unworthiness of his clients. Just let that one hang on you. He's saying that, that think about it. Jesus is going, I'm going to go and bleed and die for these people? <laughs> I mean, we sing about it, it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved an unworthy client like me. He's tested by the ease at which he could have backed out if he'd wished to. He was tested by the taunts of those who mocked him, and he was certainly tested by the full stress and agony of the cross. I personally really like the way that the message translation translates that passage that he set his face toward Jerusalem. It says, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. I love the way, because I, I love the picture of gathering yourself up for something significant. You know, there are two kinds of courage. There's the courage of, of moment, which requires no previous thought. Like, you know, something's happening, and you just courageously jump into something. You didn't have a chance to think about it. You just acted, right? Anybody ever done anything like that or not done anything in that moment? You know, it's, it's, you don't know what you have it within you until something just springs on you, and you, like, you jumped in and you helped jumped into the fire and pulled somebody out of the flames. Man, I never even thought about it. That's one kind of courage. But the kind of courage that Jesus is demonstrating here is what's called planned courage. Planned courage is different. Planned courage looks ahead, sees the difficulty, and without wavering marches toward it. You have time to think about it. You have a lot of time to think about what you're getting into, a lot of time to deviate from it. And, and Jesus had this kind of courage. He sees the cross on the horizon. He fixes his, his focus on the cross, and he steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And he hardens his face. Uh, literally, there's a stony, you know, demeanor to his face, but it's not in the sense of becoming a hard man or an angry man, but in the sense of having focus and having focus through a difficult time. And it's important. It's really important to grasp the, the, the significance of that verse it's really important information because it's deeply related to Jesus' demands, uncompromising demands on those who follow him. And I think probably the next time I'll preach, I'm going to unpack the, the part that comes after this that sets out three would-be disciples who get no bargain offered to them to follow Jesus. But for today, I'm going to focus just on these verses. And so here it is, this, this, this man, this God-man who's now set his face like flint toward Jerusalem and sets out on a journey and in the very beginning, the next two verses, you get a picture of the nature of the journey. What kind of journey it's going to be, because how does it begin? It begins in a word with rejection. <laughs> Following Jesus doesn't always mean that it's going to go easy or it's going to go well. In fact, how many of you, when you decided, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, have paid a price in some way for it? And, and so Jesus' mission, <clears throat> his journey, those who are journeying with them begin 
in, 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 a, in an aspect of rejection when he goes, into, goes through Samaria and it doesn't go so well. It says, Luke says he sent messengers before his face, and I love the way that Luke writes. The word that's used there for messengers is literally the word angels. Now, I don't think Jesus sent angelic beings ahead of him to prepare things for him. I think that the, the word, this is the way that Luke is taking a word that we overuse or we misunderstand, the word angel, which really means messenger of any kind, divine or human. And I think Luke uses it to humanize what it means for Jesus to send, to, disp- to dispatch messengers, and agelos. And, he, and he's, he's talking, I believe, about James and John, that James and John are set ahead. They're complicated angels, as we'll see in a bit. And they enter a village of the Samaritans, it says, to prepare for Jesus to come, but they did not receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Well, it's because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. It says because he had his face set towards Jerusalem that these particular Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus into Samaria. They didn't have good relationships with the, uh, good relations with the Jews, and they were prejudiced against the Jews, and the Jews were prejudiced against the Samaritans. And frankly, most of the land that was ancient Samaria, much of the land that was ancient Samaria, today is still an area where there's conflict between uh, the Jews and those who live in the Samaritan hills. Much of the West Bank is in the Samaritan foothills. Uh, Our friend who comes here and speaks that I work with, Avi Mizraki, many of you know Avi, right? He actually lives in a village that's in the Samaritan foothills called Alfi Menashe. And and so the, the point is, uh, the, whether you, whether we know it or not, I think it's an important point for us to consider that we also might see opposition that comes our way when we set our faces steadfastly or resolutely to follow God and to, and to go where Jesus goes. It, it may be the first thing we experience is something that, that opposes it. And the whole origin of this conflict is the Samaritan people seem to have been Jewish people who were intermarrying with people from the, you know, Jews from the northern kingdom who imported non-Jewish colonists that come in, came into the northern kingdom after the conquest that happened in like 722 B.C. You see it in 2 Kings chapter 17. And these mixed Jewish Gentiles developed their own translation of the Pentateuch that was different. The, it was called the, it's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And they built their own temple to worship on, Mount Gerizim. They didn't go to Jerusalem to worship the temple there. And that, that temple was destroyed. And when that temple was destroyed, there was no place for them to worship. And they celebrated their own Passover at a different time. And, it was, and they were considered half-breeds by Jews. And people would pray prayers like, I'm glad I'm not a, a, a Samaritan or a woman. You know, because this patriarchal society would say, like, man, I don't want to be a half-breed or a person who doesn't have rights. You know, and they were, they were hated by Jewish people. And they didn't like the Jews back. And for Jesus to take this path, and I don't quite understand this as I study this, but apparently this was not a path that anybody would take from the Galilee to Jerusalem. You have to go up the hills, up there. You wouldn't go through Samaria. A Jew wouldn't go through Samaria, probably mostly for the relational reasons, but also maybe it wasn't the easiest route to get there. And so for Jesus to take that way to Jerusalem was unusual. It wasn't ordinary, and any attempt to find hospitality within Samaria or Samaritan village is even more unusual. And so I think every time Jesus enters into Samaria, whether it's John 4, like a woman at a well, or whatever it may be, there's real 
purpose. Like Jesus setting his face resolutely for Jerusalem meant I'm going through Samaria to get there. Straight through. Yeah. And so great, true greatness is measured, I think, in part by our resolute nature, our willingness to kind of get on board with Jesus and just go for it. But it's also marked by something that comes now in the story. It's marked by mercy, not judgment. It says that when James and John saw that the people of Samaria, of Samaria this particular village, had rejected Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? You know the story, in, uh, I think it's 2 Kings, where Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal. And all these prophets of Baal, he says, look, guys, let's just figure out who's God's real. Get some wood and then put it here on an altar, put a sacrifice and have your God come and, and set it on fire and consume it. And so the prophets of Baal dance around the fire and, and Elijah just sits there and makes fun of them while they're, and, and you know, where's your God? Is your God, you know, is your God sleepy? Is your God impotent? You know, there's all kinds of like, they, and then finally after they give up, Elijah says, okay, pour water on it, pour more water on it. The wood's completely soaked, and then he says, Lord, come and do your thing, and boom, the fire of God falls on the, on the, the wood, the, the, the offering uh, is all burned up, and, and then, you know, you go read it yourself, but let's just say it didn't go so well for the prophets of Baal. Everything's just, everything that they're doing is destroyed, including themselves. And so these guys, James, this is James and John. This is John, the beloved, John, the lover, John who writes, you know, when people get, you know, people lead people to the Lord and they go, well, what should I do? Where should I read? You go, you should go read the book of John because John's so loving. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Like that John. John who was so close to Jesus that he reclined back into him at the Last Supper. John who has this deep revelation of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos that we call the book of Revelation. John who writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that are full of all. It's just love everywhere. That John goes with his brother James into Samaria gets rejected, comes back and says, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn these people up? But Jesus, it says, turned and rebuked him, rebuked them. Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? Now, James and John are experienced travelers. They, they've been journeying with Jesus. If we got, we're getting on this journey, this travel narrative of setting our faces toward Easter toward Jerusalem, James and John aren't like new believers. They're not like new followers. They're members of the inner circle. They're hardcore. They're all in, on fire followers of Jesus. They just had been up on the mountain, I think Hermon, with Jesus for, the mount, for, for transfiguration where they saw Jesus change. And they're like, man, he's, I mean, they're seeing all the stuff. They're experiencing all the stuff. These guys aren't noobs. They're, they know what it's like to follow Jesus in a deep way. But they're outraged. James and John are outraged because they love Jesus so much that when Jesus is poorly received by the Samaritans, they want to destroy the city in spectacular judgment for the sake of Jesus. I think it's interesting, even amusing, that James and John are so confident that they could do this. Does that ever strike you? I mean, like, what do they know? I mean, what do they think? I mean, I don't know why they think they have access to this. Yeah, you want us to call fire down from heaven? But they obviously felt like it was something that they could do. I think it's especially pertinent that they offer this after they were unable to dispossess a demon-possessed boy. But they, apparently they have some 
special access to fire from heaven. But I think more than whether they were able or not, what this reveals is why Jesus calls these guys Bahanarges. I used to pronounce it Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And here's what it tells me. Even the really close followers of Jesus don't always get it. Even those of us who've been walking with him a long time don't always get it. We don't always get it. We don't always understand it or get it right. Jesus has been teaching these guys about radical hospitality. He's been showing them what it looks like to pour your life out for people who don't follow God or don't know him. He, in fact, I think he's, Jesus is so, you know, like, you guys, we got to go back to the basics. He so, you know, sees that in their response that he, just in the next chapter, tells him a parable about um, a guy who gets abandoned on the road and left for dead, and a couple of good Jewish guys pass him by on the other side of the road, and who helps him? And, it's, and we, this parable is so famous, we call it the parable of the good Samaritan. That's, that's like uh, acid in the eyes, or in the, you know, this is like poison to the ears of Jewish people, the parable of the good Samaritan? There's no such thing. So Jesus is teaching these guys about how deeply they're supposed to lay their lives down, and instead of hearing them, they become church bullies. Presuming that they know the will of God, what following Jesus looks like, what journeying with Jesus looks like, and and presuming that they know what that means, you know, better than anybody else. And let me tell you this, knowing the will of God and following Jesus and journeying with Jesus requires that you don't get ahead of him. Well, you got to be careful when you go ahead of Jesus into Samaria to prepare things for him. Because if you get ahead of him in a way that isn't in accordance with who he is, you come back and you say things to Jesus like, you want me to call fire down from heaven? It's just, Luke makes it really simple. He says he rebukes them. And so here's the question. If you want a placeholder question for this message that you should go home and contemplate, here it is. You ready for it? Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who who are the Samaritans in your life? You've got them. Guarantee you, if we sit down and talk just a little bit, we'll figure out who they are. There are Samaritans in your life. People who in your mind or in your life or in your heart have either hurt you badly enough that you really have no room left for them or people who have offended your, your sense of following Jesus or people who have offended people who don't believe the right things or people who don't believe what you do or people who you think are unworthy of God's love, whatever it may be. Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who is it that has, you have a broken relationship with? That might be somebody that you actually think of in, in a similar way. So Jesus turns and rebukes them. Their offense, uh, even, on, even though they did it on behalf of Jesus, wasn't appreciated by Jesus. And, the, and the, 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 the determination, the resoluteness of Jesus that we talk about in the previous verses, it didn't mean that he was now a tough guy or angry at people who were against him. But apparently, James and John saw the flint face, the rock face of Jesus, and thought it meant like, okay, he's got his face set on these Samaritans. But he didn't. They thought his face was, was, was toward them, but it was actually toward Jerusalem. And they didn't understand that what was going on in Jesus is that that flint-like face meant focus. It meant being more focused on love than ever before. It meant that that flint-like face was going to end up on a cross 
in the ultimate demonstration of love and not the ultimate demonstration of anger, which is we're going to burn their village down. If you want to get a handle of what's going on here, flip back in your Bible one page in chapter 9, and there's this verse that just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's verse 23. It's up there on the screen. And Jesus says this to all who are following him. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to travel with me, then you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, I don't have the time to unpack the significance of what this passage means because to take up a cross, I mean, you kind of sort of see it when Jesus has to carry his cross from the place of scourging to the place of crucifixion. You know, you see the mocking, the shame, the, the torture that's involved with it. And Jesus is saying that if you're going to travel with me, you've got to actually lay yourself down and you've got to do something like this daily. Take up your cross daily. Now, if Jesus never spelled that out concretely, if he never kind of defined what that meant, then perhaps our most important acts of obedience to follow Jesus would be things like giving up sweets or social media for Lent. That would be the most significant ways that we could follow him. Or some sort of meaningless act of self-inflicted pain, like people do things. This is literally the sorts of things people have done through history, like putting a tack in your shoe while you walk to work so that you would feel some measure of pain as you, as you walk so that you could identify with the pain and suffering of Jesus. If Jesus never spelled out what it meant to take up your cross and follow him, then I suppose that those sorts of things would be the sorts of things that we could do meaningfully to engage what Jesus is saying to take up your cross. We could give up something, or we could put a tack in our shoes. But Jesus does spell out concretely what it means to follow him. The one who has set his face for Jerusalem doesn't have any bargains to offer. There's no loopholes in this. And again, the next time I preach, I'm going to get into the way in which Jesus unpacks this with the cost of following Jesus in three people. But here's the point of it. I think deep down in your heart, you want to be challenged. I I do believe this. Deep down in your heart, anyone who is tender at all toward Jesus wants to be challenged to follow Jesus in a more significant way. Anyone who's, it, the only one that doesn't want to be challenged is, is, are people who are like, I just reject that. But if you even are tender toward it, you want more. We say, I want more of you, God. Set a fire down in my heart. You know, that's, that's really the nature of man. If you, that, you know, there was a philosopher, I can't remember now, who says there's a God, maybe it was Pascal, a God-sized hole in your heart that only God can fill. And we're longing for other things to fill that will never fill it. And we know we want more. And I've been in, places in the world, I remember once in in Guatemala and Antigua where revival was going on in a church that was so significant in a town square that they would start worshiping and open the doors and when they would open the doors and the sound would come out, people would run to the altar. People in the square that were partying would run to the altar or they would run out of town. There was no in between. There was no gray area. People were getting radically saved or they were fleeing. There was no, and I think that's where we are that we want to be, we want to be connected. We want to be here the call of God in our lives so significantly that it calls us into this deep place. We don't want to live in the lukewarm middle. We want to be challenged. And it doesn't say it in the verse that I read up here. If you go back to uh, the second part of Luke, like 53 and 54, 
So if you go to the next one, you see there where it says, uh, you want us to call them out fire from heaven and consume them? And it says, but he turned and rebuked him, and they went on to another village. But right there, 55 to 56, at the end of 55, there's actually a lot of argument about what, was, what took place here because a lot of manuscripts actually detail what Jesus says. It gets left out of almost all of our English translations. But I love it so much that I want to tell you what it says. You could go research this for yourself. But in some of the manuscripts, the rebuke of James and John is actually spelled out, and it says this. This is what Jesus says to James and John. You do not know what manner of spirit you are from. For the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In other words, Jesus explains their failing at this point. You want us to call down fire and burn up all these people? He explains it in two ways. He says, number one, James and John, you don't know yourselves. You don't know what lies within you. And, and he's, you know, perhaps they thought they were being like Jesus or showing the character of God or demonstrating that, and they were mistaken. They didn't represent God. They didn't represent his heart. Jesus loved the Samaritans and wanted them to repent and be saved. He didn't want them destroyed. But he's also telling them, guys, you don't know me, and you don't know my mission. I came to save the lost, not to burn them up with fire from heaven. And so... What Jesus is getting at here is that following me, guys, means being merciful instead of harsh with people who are far from me. And we should especially remember that when we encounter verses like in Romans 12 where it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's a commentator who says it this way, the disciples of that Christ who died for his enemies should never think of avenging themselves on their persecutors. The followers of Jesus are not the Avengers. You know, if you follow Jesus, you're not, you know, Captain America or this or that. We're not, they're not the, this is not who we're called to be as followers of the Lord. We're called to lay that down. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity with our Tuesday night Bible study to go and see a movie called Free Burma Rangers. Thank you, Rick Joswick, for making us go and see this movie. I know this ministry. I've known it for a long time. Uh, friends of mine that have worked with them. And this movie details a family, a single family who started Free Burma Rangers. The name's Dave Eubanks. Has anybody heard of Dave Eubanks and the Free Burma Rangers? Their kids were born in the jungles of Burma. They've been raised, in that, and now they're, they, they moved from Burma to Iraq, and they're working throughout Iraq, and they were right there in Mosul during the battle from Mosul where, where ISIS was slaughtering people. And Free Burma Rangers are there helping to bring people out of this and to save people. And these, I mean, they're, they're, they're really pretty legit dudes, but they're also... Um, the Rangers part is real. I mean, they carry guns, and they're Dave. Dave is a—he's just—he's a, a real pure-hearted follower of Jesus, but he's also an Army Ranger. And so, you can see as they—they're kind of following the story of the Eubanks, and they're following the tension of what it means to serve in this context. And you can see it on Dave that it, it just weighs on him every time that something happens, like. There's a little girl, there's a whole village, they're at a house and a family with a little girl wrapped around Dave's leg. And she's just loving on him, and he's loving on their family, and they literally get in their car to leave. This little girl, not even a minute later, they hit a landmine, and the little girl's blown apart. Or his driver is, and translator is shot and killed, and He's struggling with this, and he keeps struggling with this before the Lord. And finally, when he's had enough, he says to, these, he says to his friends, that's it. We're done. We will kill every ISIS person that we can find. 
They're evil, and they're only evil, and they will not stop until all of us are wiped out. We will kill them all. And he goes home, and he reads in his Bible as he's praying, and he's sorting this Romans 12, where it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And he prays, and he hears the voice of the Lord speak to his heart, and he goes back to his men, who are all Burmese men, who have come to follow Jesus through Dave, and he realizes that he has essentially become James and John in, in Samaria. And he goes back to his guys, and he says this. He says something like this, and I, I kind of wrote it down as a quote. He's, he's processing it, and he says, guys, we can't do this. This isn't our job. And then he says to the camera, he says, you know, vengeance is strange. He says it looks like justice. It looks a lot like justice, but it's driven by hate. And I want to tell you, I see this a lot. I see this a lot in ministry. I see a lot of stuff that people think is justice, social justice or personal justice or whatever it may be, but actually it's fueled by something that's more like hate. I see it here. You know, I mean, just in the last week, stuff I've, I've dealt with here locally, it's like, man, I, I know you feel like you're going after a just cause, but this is really something that feels more like vengeance, and I see it globally. I'm actually working through a situation right now, one of the ministries I work with, I think very much personifies somebody feels like they're going after something that's just, but it's fueled by something that it's catalyzed by hate, so it's not just, it's vengeance. And so, shame on us is what I would say when we seek vengeance when and where Jesus doesn't seek it, but he seeks redemption and restoration. We cannot run out ahead of him in accomplishing the purposes of God. To follow him means we resolutely set our face where he does. And when he says these people are worthy of my death, then they're worthy of ours. We can give our lives to those that Jesus would give his life to. Well, I'm closing, so Brian, come on up here. Or, I'm sorry, whoever's coming up. Following Jesus is costly. You know that? Has anybody followed him intensely enough and long enough that you've come to the conclusion that you've actually maybe even said this before the Lord? This isn't easy. It'd be easier, honestly, be easier to go my own way. I can tell you this. um, I'd have a lot of money. I'm sure I'd have a lot more money if, if I didn't follow Jesus. If there weren't any constraints and boundaries on what, it, what I could do, if I could just go do anything, if I could chase after dollars and feel like I was being obedient, you know, if I could just cut the corners or if I could, I, I could, there's a lot of things I could do that would feel like fun. It's costly. A friend of mine way back, I mean, 20 years ago, wrote a, used to be a, something called church bulletins. Some of you, Bert, you remember church bulletins, right? You remember your job? Remember how much work it was each week to write something for the cover of the church bulletin? I read them. Well, I read. I would read Nate's because Nate was such a good writer. And Nate, back in February of like 2000, was writing around this time of year about costly grace and cheap grace. And he said, uh, you know, there's this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian who was killed in a prison camp like days before the end of World War II. And even though the church lost a great man, 
he left behind truth that's important and imperative that we would grapple with during a season of Lent. And then he, he quotes Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, or it's baptism without discipline, or it's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace, though, is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets, leaves everything, and follows him. That's quoting Bonhoeffer. And then my friend Nate writes this. Wow. (laughs) When you put it like that, I think we all mostly live on cheap grace. He says, but the call of Jesus on our lives is a call to costly grace, a call to say, you know what, Jesus? My spiritual life is priceless, but I live as though it's worthless. I say I'm a Christian, but I run from discipleship, from anything that costs me something or it's inconvenient even to me, from anything that would really change me. But it's time now to change, and today is the day. He says the problem with cheap grace is you get what you pay for. You get nothing. Discipleship and intentional or discipline and intentional discipleship, on the other hand, bring reward and vitality to life. He says, are you just getting by in your spiritual life, just barely making it Sunday to Sunday, but in between blown about by your circumstances? Or are you intentionally giving yourself, sacrificing, laying down, denying yourself and other priorities that would be lesser for the one that will last eternally? Are you spending your life for what counts or are you saving by getting by on cheap grace? reason I feel like it's so welling up in me to preach this passage is because I've been really praying a lot through what does it mean for me, Lord, to love like Eli. Honestly, that's where I've been praying. What does it mean? I said yesterday when we gathered that this little boy in 10 years, I, I think maybe impacted positively more people than most people do in their whole lives. He's also the kind of kid who would wake up at three in the morning and go get his brother and say, I'm burdened by this person that's hurting. I think he I think he really did embody loving like Jesus. So loving like Eli, in my mind, means loving like Jesus, which means it's costly love. It wakes you up at 3 a.m. And so we have to set our face, not on Jerusalem, but set our face on Jesus. We have to journey with Jesus, even in the midst of rejection, even if it costs us things that we wish it didn't. We have to choose mercy over judgment. We have to choose the way of Jesus over the way of vengeance. Who are the Samaritans in your life? And we have to remember the cost of the grace that we received. So let's stand and pray. And then if you want to come to the altar as we close, you can. I will. You can join me there. You can come and get prayer. You do what the Lord leads you to do. But let's pray. Jesus, there is no greater joy, there's no deeper honor than to burn all the ships of all the directions of all the ways in which I could pursue my own course and follow you. I'm all in, Jesus. And some days I waver 
Some days I run ahead of you into a Samaritan village and I get upset and I want to burn it down. And I ask, Lord, that you would reveal in my heart the Samaritans in my life, the ones whom I would reject that you do not. Show me how to love like you. Speak to my heart, Jesus.